Hello, and welcome to Progressive Opinions of Color, a podcast that seeks to make space for people of color in conversations about economics and politics. My name is Nancy Wu, and I am your host. And today, it's going to be just me. I'm doing an econ Q&A to answer all of your questions about the economy. Y'all asked some deep-ass questions, so I have some deep-ass answers for you about the stock market, using GDP to measure economic health, what are some alternatives to that, the downfalls of GDP, how to think about the increasing deficit, what's inflation and interest rates, everything, basically. So I'm super excited. Before we get into that, though, make sure to subscribe and leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps me a lot as a new podcaster. That's super helpful for me to grow an audience and to have more people joining. Also, our podcast has an Instagram page now. It's POC Podcast, and you can follow it on Instagram. So yeah, let's get started. The first question is, what are the flaws of using the S&P 500, the Dow Jones, or NASDAQ to measure the economy? So these three are stock indices that trace companies across the U.S., and a lot of people use these indices as a benchmark for the state of the economy. So when people say stocks are up or stocks are down, the S&P 500 rose to record highs. So let's break down what these indices are, first of all. The S&P 500 traces the 500 largest publicly traded companies in the U.S., They are heavily tech dominant, so 25% of their price would be dependent on tech companies. And keep in mind that tech is not 20%, 25% of the economy. NASDAQ is an exchange as well as an index, but we're talking about the index here. And NASDAQ includes over 3,300 stocks that trade on the NASDAQ exchange And these are mainly internet, tech, and a few financial consumer, biotech, and industrial companies. But again, also very tech-dominated. So when these two metrics hit record highs, think about how well the tech companies are doing right now. And we'll get more into that. The Dow Jones Industrial Average traces the average price weighted of 30 significant stocks traded on the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ. And this tends to be a bit more stable. It's not tech dominated. And it used to be just looking at industrial manufacturing companies, but because that's not a big part of the economy in the US anymore, it's mostly just everything else. So that being said, these are not the economy. The S&P 500 and NASDAQ are especially not the economy, nor are they necessarily even the stock market. So let's talk about how these are not the economy first. So S&P 500 and NASDAQ set new records in September, and some say that these indices are forward-looking, which shows optimism towards the market. So there's potential optimism because we're optimistic for a vaccine, consumer spending, so people spending money on things, increased in July, and it was better than what Wall Street had predicted. So that's good. Consumer spending is a sign of recovery for the economy. But this optimism, to me, is highly political and overly optimistic. The economy is at nowhere near all-time highs, but stocks are at all-time highs. The economy is far from recovering. Sure, in July, unemployment fell by 0.9 percentage points, But there's still 
an unemployment rate of 10.2%, which is 16.3 million people who are still unemployed. In New York City, unemployment is around 20%, and small businesses are suffering. State and local governments have a lot of financial damage. And these jobs, we're not going to just see 16.3 million jobs come out of nowhere. That's going to take more than days, more than months, perhaps years for the economy to fully recover. So the fact that the stock market has hit new records, that doesn't really mean that the economy is doing that well. But it gives off the perception that the economy is will do well, which can be dangerous because... We really need to think about worst case scenarios here in order to form our policies. And we'll get into that when I talk about the deficit. Keep in mind that these indices are not even the stock market. So when people call the S&P 500 or NASDAQ the stock market, keep in mind these indices give disproportionate weight to the largest companies and also tech. So I mentioned that tech makes up a quarter of the S&P 500. And tech companies are doing much better during COVID than many other industries, such as retail, finance, manufacturing. At the end of the day, it's an index of large cap companies. It doesn't include mid and small cap companies that make up most of the economy. And most of these companies are hurting. Okay, so the next question that directly follows this one, how should we be measuring the strength of the economy if not looking at the stock market? So GDP is the most commonly accepted metric today. GDP is the total monetary value of all finished goods and services produced in a country. In fact, even recessions, the definition of a recession is when GDP is falling for two consecutive quarters. So we are in a recession right now, according to that definition. So what are the flaws of using GDP as a measure of the economy? Well, using GDP as a goal, we always talk about how we want higher GDP without really understanding the consequences. What does high GDP mean? It's a lot of environmental damage, pollution, exporting pollution to other countries to manufacture intermediate parts for like our computers and shit. Basically, GDP counts the cars that we produce, but it does not account for the emissions of those cars. Now, others will say, well, it's not GDP that we should look at. We should be looking at GDP per capita, which is GDP divided by the number of people in a country because and use that as a measure of standard of living. But what does that even mean? Total output divided by population, it doesn't capture how resources are distributed across the population, and it does not account for rising inequality. So that doesn't really work. All of these metrics are created by dudes and also do not account for all of the invisible labor that are mostly borne by women due to the fucking patriarchy, such as childcare and work in the home. None of that is accounted in GDP. Neither is like y'all selling drugs and stuff on the black market. That's not in the GDP either. Not that it should be. That's a There's an economy for that as well. But basically, GDP does not capture everything. So there are a few things to consider as alternatives And I want to just like shout out two ideas that I think are smart. One is Andrew Yang, my Asian brother. I hope he become president one day. But he suggests incorporating human metrics along with economic metrics. So what are human metrics? They are quality of life. They are health adjusted life expectancy, happiness and mental health, environmental quality, affordability, quality of infrastructure, infant mortality, economic mobility, civic engagement. 
childhood success rate, and so much more. Those are all metrics that we can look at. Another idea of looking at economic growth and our goals is the donut theory. It's an idea from Kate Raworth, who's an Oxford economist. So for this theory, picture a donut. There's the donut hole and then like the outer crust, and then there's the, the donut itself. The hole represents people that lack access to essential resources such as education, racial equity and justice, food, water, health. And the outer crust represents ecological boundaries that must not be overshot, like the ozone layer depletion and pollution and climate change. So the optimal level of economic development should really occur inside the donut, where everyone has the basic social foundations for living, but we're not overproducing so much that it's damaging our planet. So that is another idea, because why like infinite growth is detrimental to the economy And there are other ways to look at growth that includes well-being and making sure that everyone has enough, but that we're not fucking up the world. And I think ideally, like rather than measuring growth of output and how much we're producing, we should really be prioritizing how are we serving the people in our country? How are we minimizing ecological damage? And how are we minimizing harm to people in other countries? All right, let's get to some questions about the deficit. All right, so this is another big topic, and it's the second and last one I'm going to address in this episode. Is the national deficit increasing not a problem or a huge problem? So the deficit is the difference between the money that the U.S. government takes in through taxes or other sources and the money that the government spends. The debt is the total money accumulated over time. So the deficit accumulated over time. This is a big deal right now. A lot of people are talking about it and you're going to hear so many conservatives talk about how high the freaking deficit is over the next few months as a political strategy. And I'm here to inform y'all that that's kind of bullshit. And this is why. So some context here. News came out September 2nd that the U.S. government debt will exceed the size of GDP in 2021. And Fitch ratings downgraded the fiscal outlook of the U.S. to negative. But the nation's credit rating is still AAA. And Fitch ratings says that the deficit is eroding the traditional credit strengths of the U.S. And the U.S. has the highest government debt of any AAA rated country. What the hell does any of that mean? Let me tell you that it doesn't really matter because this is all politics. I'll tell you why and when the debt and the deficit matters. So the dollar amount of the actual debt is not meaningful in any way. What matters is the debt to GDP ratio. And we talked about how GDP isn't necessarily the best way to measure growth. For simplicity's sake, let's assume that it is in order for me to go through this example of what the deficit means. Okay, so is this a problem? Is a growing deficit a problem? It really depends on the context of the economy. So there's been a growing deficit due to the COVID relief. For the CARES Act, the government pulled out $3 trillion to give in stimulus checks. That's adding to the deficit, but that was a central stimulus and more stimulus is needed. For some context here, the goal of providing stimulus packages is to prevent a recession. So raising debt now could stimulate more GDP in the future. If we don't give more stimulus checks, we will be in a deep recession, which would bring even more debt because of even less economic activity, less taxes 
collected and even more unemployment checks that we have to give if we are in a deep recession. So basically, give the stimulus checks now, continue giving them until the recession is over, until COVID is over. Otherwise, you're going to be dealing with this for a lot longer. It's also not too big of a deal to go into more debt right now because interest rates are low. That means the debt is more manageable because there's less for the government to pay back. So all that being said, now let's understand why stimulus now could be better for the future from an economic theory example. In order to understand if stimulus is a good thing, we have to understand if our current economy is supply constrained or demand constrained. Let me break down what that means. Demand constrained means that there are people who are unemployed but willing to work and looking for jobs but firms are not hiring them because there's not enough consumers, there's not enough people who are buying goods and services. Therefore, we don't need, we can't hire more labor to produce those goods and services. And in a case like that, employment can increase simply by increasing the demand of goods, which comes from consumer spending. So when we buy things, when more of us have more disposable income to buy things, more people are hired to produce those things essentially. Now, in a supply-constrained economy, all willing workers are already employed. So production is at its maximum capacity. All the goods and services that you want to buy and use are already out there because of full employment. So when more people want to buy things, if we're giving a stimulus check and having more people have more money to buy things, that will drive prices up because people can't produce more things because we're at full employment. So in that case, the excess demand will push up prices and that's what leads to inflation. And inflation here is the fear. But you know what? In the case of COVID, the economy is demand constrained, not supply constrained. And we will not be supply constrained for a while. So inflation is not something to worry about. What happened with COVID is that there was a sudden shock when the pandemic happened. When everything shut down, demand plummeted because people weren't spending money on restaurants and travel. People were getting laid off from industries that weren't getting demand and the laid off workers were spending less money as well. The government response to correct this was to provide unemployment benefits and stimulus checks to those who have lost jobs and income in order to boost spending and demand until the economy goes back to normal. So the CARES Act did this, but that expired at the end of July. These are the $600 a week checks that everyone has been talking about that has been a lifesaver for a lot of people. But those checks are something that we have to keep up throughout this pandemic. We can't just stop giving relief while the economy is still damaged, while unemployment is still high. Because without stimulus checks, more families will go into more debt and be able to spend less money once the economy does return closer to normal, and that will drag out a recession even longer. And that's what happened during the Great Recession which is that when we try to decrease the deficit while the economy is still weak, that makes recovery even slower and more painful than it has to be. So the goal here is to make sure that people are still spending money throughout COVID and they spend even more after the pandemic. And we need to finance that with going into more debt rather than giving people taxes because taxes would also take away spending power. We just need to finance spending until the economy is back at full employment. So yes, the world runs on capitalism. We have to spend money in order for things to function. The concerns of inflation. So we talked about how inflation happens in a supply-constrained economy when 
more people are trying to buy goods than there can possibly be goods produced, and that drives prices up. Fast rising debt is going to be painful for the economy in the situation when the economy is supply constrained, because that is what causes inflation. Or also an increase in interest rates. Higher interest rates reduce consumer borrowing and spending, so you're less likely to buy a house or a car if interest rates are really high. We are not in a supply-constrained economy by any means because there's not full employment, and we won't be there for a while because we're creating stimulus debt during a time when demand is so low. It's not going to push up interest rates and inflation. Prices don't just go up when there's not that much demand. So when not a lot of people are going to restaurants, restaurants prices aren't just going to shoot up. The cost of borrowing interest also does not go up when there's not a lot of people borrowing to make purchases. Some people are buying houses, some people are buying cars, but a lot of people are staying home and taking a pause on their home buying process, even though mortgage rates are low. But higher mortgage rates, higher interest rates isn't going to incentivize more people to come onto the market and buy those homes and buy those cars. So that's why interest rates aren't going to go up. So to summarize, fast-growing debt is only harmful when it comes with an increase in interest rates or inflation, and that's simply not something that we're seeing now and won't be expecting for a long time. Okay, so my thoughts on all of this: we just talked about how GDP is kind of. A fucked up way to measure the strength of an economy, and the whole goal of like the debt being good from an economics perspective is that people spend more money. What's the point here? I'm so tired of economists and politicians just like hopping onto this train where they think that the concept of debt is bad, and debt is just associated with bad. And it doesn't matter what it is; no one even understands like that is the debt to GDP ratio we're talking about. People who understand that don't understand why we care about GDP or why we care about debt. Let's just take a few steps back and think about what the goal is here. People are losing their jobs. People cannot pay rent. People are thinking about about how to feed their families in the next week or the next month. People are losing jobs. So what's at stake here are human lives, people's abilities to access basic resources during a pandemic when they've lost income. So can we just look at that as the goal? Like we want to. Make sure that people have basic resources and have their needs met. That is the goal. That should be the goal, not like oh, this number is going up. We should prioritize giving people enough resources to survive. And do stimulus packages do that? Yes, they do. Do stimulus packages increase well-being? Yes, they do. Do they add to the debt as well? Yes, it does. But debt is not necessarily bad. It makes economic sense in this scenario, but it also makes just like. Sense for humanity and for being a good and responsible country, basically that cares about its people. So that's my thoughts on it. We gotta like rethink these things and not just look at debt and be like, "That's bad. It's increasing. That's a problem." And you're gonna hear a lot of that from politicians in these upcoming months, I promise. And just like keep this in mind because they don't know what they're talking about. Basically, that being said, if you are investing your money for retirement. I still hold my biggest investments in index funds that trace the S and P 500. It's one of the safest long-term investments with the largest payoffs. The S and P 500 goes up and down, but what we're doing, what I'm advocating for here, is long-term investments. So just put your money in there 
And you're going to see that the stock market will be volatile in the short term, but it's going to have consistent growth of four to six percent in the long term. So not looking at that and letting that money grow passively over the next 40 to 50 years until you retire is my retirement strategy. And because betting on companies to rise and fall is just too risky and you're basically gambling there. And I get that capitalism sucks and investing is for privileged people, but I get a lot of questions about investing and this is the world we live in. So we should be prepared with as much information as possible. If you have extra savings that you're just leaving in your checking account that you don't even plan on using, then you're essentially paying the bank the rate of inflation each year. So if inflation increases by 2%, which it has been for a while, you're paying the bank 2% every year. So if capitalism sucks, you might as well get as much as possible from it rather than pay your hard-earned money back into the big banks. So put your money in index funds that trace these markets and watch it grow by 10 to 20 times by the time that you take it out for retirement. I have a previous episode with David Kim where we talk about some financial literacy tips and you can check that out as well to learn more. I'm also happy to talk more about this because I get a lot of questions on financial literacy. That's all for now. I have a lot more questions that I didn't get to. Just responding to these questions, I think was like a lot of information already. And I hope that it is informative and interesting and that it makes sense. Thank you so much for listening. Our next episodes are going to be some interviews that I do with some people I know about culture, about our Asian American experiences and how that shaped our views on politics and economics. We're going to be talking about a lot of interesting stuff ahead. So make sure to subscribe to be updated for new episodes. Make sure to rate five stars and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Make sure to follow me on POC Podcast on Instagram. And I will see you guys in the next episode on Monday.